part of healing from trauma itself, part of healing in general, part of having and creating deeper, more fulfilling lives and relationships is our capacity to be real, to be raw. Welcome to Your Brain on Trauma, where we share science-based tools to heal from childhood traumas so you can let go of patterns that might be holding you back, have better relationships, and pass on a legacy that you're proud of. I'm your host, Dr. Kavita Sun. I'm a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, a trauma recovery coach, and a survivor myself. I'm super honored to have you here. I've got so much to share with you. Let's dive in. Well, hello there, my friends. How are you today, my lovies? Hope you guys are doing fine. Hope you are pausing, noticing, and showing up for yourself. That's what I wish for you. I am so glad to be here today, and I'm excited about this episode. Today, I wanted to share a little bit more about my own journey and how I came to be doing this work and how I came to be doing it in this particular sort of way. I have a somewhat of a unique way, I think, in approaching relational healing. And it came through a lot of trial and error. I like to say a lot more error than trial, honestly. So I am excited to be sharing some of the pretty and not so pretty behind the scenes, shall we say. You know, I've shared this story over the last few years, many, many times with my clients, with um, friends, with people who have just been curious. And I'm sure you've experienced this as well. You know, when you tell a story over and over, over many years, it sort of takes on a life form of its own, you know, and it becomes um, somewhat automatic, right? It's like driving, Initially, you're very aware of each and every part of the car and where your feet are. And then over a few years, you do it automatically without thinking and your mind is somewhere else while you're driving, you know. It's almost like that in that the story I realized as I was preparing for today's episode, that the telling of the story had become somewhat automatic and scripted, right? And I think that happens to all of us, especially stories that we tell about our childhood or about past relationships or even the people in our lives now. We have a, oh yeah, that's how it is, kind of certainty to it. And to me, that reduces or shortchanges the authenticity and the vulnerability and the depth and the nuance that is inherent in every story, in every relationship, in every journey. So I'm really glad to be doing today's episode because it's another opportunity for me to pause, slow down and uncover more layers where instead of just repeating something that I've said over and over, 
I get to show you and show the world a little bit more of the real me. And the real any of us is messier and less finished than we usually portray, right? And that's where the gold is, in my opinion. That's where, you know, as the famous saying goes, the wound is where the light gets in. So I think part of healing from trauma itself, part of healing in general, part of having and creating deeper, more fulfilling lives and relationships is our capacity to be real, to be raw, and to be steady and know that we will be okay in revealing more of our truth. So here goes. <laughs> it was a rainy day in January of 1976. <laughs> I'm kidding. It wasn't half as uh, cinematic as that. <laughs> well, where do I start? Let me give you some background context. I was born the eldest of three to a South Indian couple. <laughs> My father was a prominent, very prominent um, eye surgeon in South India. And uh, he came himself from abject poverty. He was the first person in his, any of his generation prior to him. No one had even finished fifth grade. And he ended up training and doing his fellowship in ophthalmology at the Royal College of Surgeons in London. And he was very much a pattern breaker in his own way. But he also had a lot of trauma that he carried within him. And my mother was a 16-year-old child bride to my dad. They were married when my dad was 30 and my mom was 16. When you look at their um, wedding pictures, you know, those black and white photos, First of all, it's really curious back then. People didn't smile as much in pictures. <laughs> Very serious, especially for a wedding, right? But there they are. He's in a suit, all handsome and brimming with possibility and potential. And my mother looks so... I don't know how to... I don't know what, like... Hopeful, longing innocent, naive, little scared. Yeah, every time she still has acne, right? Teenage acne on her cheeks in the wedding pictures. Every time I look at those pictures, ah, oh, my heart, it just, yeah, these two people came from their own traumas. My mother was the eldest of two, born to parents. Her father, my grandfather, was an alcoholic and um, cheated on his wife. My grandmother had an ongoing affair, another family in the same village. And coming from where we came from in the village, your reputation was everything. 
you know. And so my grandmother really raised her children with a lot of uh, shame for her own life story and a lot of anger at the helpless trap that she found herself in. Because back then, you were really just reliant. Once you got married, you just were, you went to live with your husband and his family and they were then your family. There was no question back then of leaving and there was nowhere to go. So all that anger and helplessness, she was brilliant lady. My grandmother was brilliant and was top of her class in her school, wanted to become a physician herself. But being the eldest of three daughters, she was married off pretty early to my grandfather, who was not educated and not really into education and struggled with alcoholism, which was apparent pretty soon after they were married. In any case, my mother was raised in this environment, full of anger, instability, chaos, shame, secrets, right? And their way of, quote-unquote, ensuring her future was trying to marry her off as soon as possible <laughs> to someone that was smart and had a lot of potential and was good-looking and Really, my dad was um, the most eligible bachelor at that time in the surrounding 10 villages. So getting him, quote unquote, was considered a jackpot. And so when he agreed, when his family, my dad's family agreed to marry him to my mother, it was a resounding celebration. And so that was that, the wedding happened. And my mother had so much unconcealed, sorry, concealed. Later it was unconcealed, but for many, many years, very repressed sense of unfairness and anger, rage really, inside of her. And my dad was pretty controlling many ways. He would make condescending remarks, insulting remarks, really humiliating remarks about my mom's body and her appetite and the way she ate and her lack of conversational English and all these things. I still remember some of those comments and how embarrassed I was for my mom how angry I felt towards my dad, but also how helpless I felt in that because he was also physically abusive to us kids. I got the brunt of it being the oldest. And uh, when I'm talking about physical abuse, this is the kind of stuff that had it happened in the US, we would have been taken into child custody, protective services, you know? This was getting beat with a buckle end of a belt until your skin was peeling off many times. So in the midst of all this, on the outside, my family 
looked sort of um, blessed, you know. My dad did very well in his career. We kept moving homes to a bigger and bigger home each time. We had chauffeur-driven cars. We had cooks and, you know, help inside the home. We lived, quote-unquote, a charmed life from the outside. And back then, if your husband did not drink or have affairs and worked hard and provided well for the family, you should consider yourself very lucky. So I remember growing up in a home where I felt this confusion between a sinking sense of chaos and hurt and dismissal and just being ignored, really, emotionally inside the home, but also then feeling like I should be very, very grateful when I was outside the home. It was quite confusing. For a long time, I thought there was something wrong with me that I just didn't know how to be grateful enough. Yeah, I really did think that my dad would tell me when I was younger that I was selfish. Isn't it amazing the things that you remember, the words you remember? And so for many years, even up until my mid-30s, I'm in my mid-40s now, even until my mid-30s, I kind of believed that there was a part of me that was selfish and that I had to protect this part, sort of conceal it, keep it secret. If only people knew that I'm actually a selfish person. I just believed it, you know? It took me a lot of my own healing to recognize that that was his own fear of himself and his own sort of hatred of himself and his dad and their relationship that was being projected onto us. And then I spent a few years being totally angry. And that was a journey too. And then finally I've gotten to a place where I feel sad for that little boy who was my dad. Oh, his story of trauma, my goodness. He was born the middle child. He often says the only human being who gave him any warmth. And when he says warmth, it was just maybe a pat on the head a couple of times. That was his older brother. And his older brother passed away when he was 16 from accidental insecticide poisoning. And my dad says the very next day they all went back into the fields and never spoke of him again. Interestingly, we repeated that same way of dealing with loss when my mother committed suicide when I was 18. Same thing. We were taking care of funeral arrangements and rites for about four days. Then it was just back to work and school and that was it. Never mentioned her. Never talked about her. Never processed. So there was a lot of intergenerational trauma 
Now, don't get me wrong. There was also a lot of love. I don't think that I could have even begun to search for something better if it wasn't for the fact that I also had some love in my life early on. Not from my parents. They did the best they could, obviously, but they were barely surviving. They were barely keeping their head above water. My mother's concealed rage became not so well concealed towards the second half of her life. And she never was violent with us, her children, but she was very violent, unspeakably violent to young maids. These were kids back then. Child labor was just an accepted part of society. And these kids that worked in our homes were almost always younger than us. It'd be like 12 or 13 or 11 or 14, somewhere around there. And she would be so violent. Oh my goodness. Some of those images only the ones I caught because we were at school the whole day. I don't know what happened during those hours that I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of. But the few times that I did catch it, I still have nightmares about that. It's been maybe about eight years that I haven't had any nightmares. But prior to that, I would still have nightmares about the things that I saw. So my dad was violent to us. My mom was violent to other children. And, but my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, even though she struggled, from what I understand, to be a loving, present, gentle mom, she was a loving, present, gentle grandmother. She really thought that the sun rose and set with me. <laughs> She slept for many years when I had left India and come to the US. She would sleep with a picture of me under her pillow every night. And she was a big part of raising me in the first few years. And I have many, many memories of her love and her gentleness. Just moments, but still. They fed my soul and kept it alive. I guess. And I'm forever grateful. There were also extended aunts and uncles and cousins. There was joy and laughter and camaraderie and fun weddings and all these things as well. In any case, my mother passes away, commits suicide when I'm 18. And my sister and I are the only ones there at home with her on that night when she overdosed. Without going into a lot of detail, what I can tell you is I thought it was my fault. I really, truly believed that I had killed my mother for many, many years after that. 
not intentionally, obviously, but that if I had not been her firstborn, that would not have happened, was my deep shameful secret. I continued doing well in school. I got into med school on a scholarship, fell in love with psychiatry, met some wonderful, wonderful friends who gave me a glimpse of what a normal family life, quote unquote, I mean, not that any family life is normal. We all have some level of trauma or dysfunction in our families. But they were the first glimpse of close up, really close up, of allowing children to speak their mind, disagree with parents, but still there was respect, there was affection, there was worrying of children's emotional state, things I'd never seen or experienced, you know, that close up. And it was a first glimpse for me of what could be, you know. Added to all this, I was starting to figure out that I was gay. However, I didn't have the word, I didn't have the language for it. All I knew was that I had this not socially acceptable desire and attraction to members of the same sex. So I chalked it up in my mind to just the fact that this trauma had happened and I was lost and struggling. And also we weren't really allowed to speak or hang out with members of the opposite sex. So in my mind, it was just that I never had the opportunity. And when I did, it would all fall into place because obviously everybody else was happy or looked like that was the only way to be. So I sort of repressed it. I didn't even think about it that much. I had these covert stolen moments with a couple of good classmates and friends along the way, but we never spoke about it. We never thought about it. I didn't know what to make of it, so I just pushed it down. And eventually, I had an arranged marriage to a wonderful man. And that's how I ended up in the United States, because he happened to be here. In the meantime, added to all the trauma and the confusion within the four walls of the home that I was raised in, there was also the discovery by some of my school teachers of little love notes I'd written to classmates. I think it was eighth or ninth grade. And that was a strict Catholic school. This was considered completely immoral. My dad found out and I, yeah, it was, it was bad. It was bad. 
And I swallowed that part of me completely, put it away, tried to forget about it. In any case, all of this was happening while I was also growing, thinking, reading beautiful books of literature and philosophy and psychology and learning more about the mind, doing well in medical school, having some wonderful memories that we made with my best friends, who are still my best friends to this day. All of this was happening parallelly. And fast forward many, many years, I finally come to accept my sexual orientation. My ex-husband and I split amicably. He is now remarried with a child as well. I, after much trial and error, meet my spouse and we've been together now eight years and our daughter is four and I cannot, I, I just cannot even put into words the safety, security, unconditional love, the laughter, the sense that we have each other's back and the pride that I feel that I know for sure that I'm not passing on this intergenerational trauma to my daughter. To me, that's always been the North Star. I would change anything in my life if it was in any way taking me away from that deep mission. That is, to be the lever of change in this intergenerational story. Because it didn't start with me. It didn't start with my parents. It didn't even start with my grandparents. It goes way back. And believe it or not, despite all of the hurt that I was raised with, it was actually better than what my father was raised with. And I've heard him say that his life was better than what my grandfather, his father, was raised with, and on and on. So to me, this healing that I now have, that I've enjoyed now for a decade, it's not just that I have done this work, it's that each successive generation has actually done their best in their way of passing on a little less pain to the next generation. And so my healing, I owe actually to the generation before me as well. That's my take on it at least. And to me, it's a privilege that I happen to be born in, at this, I'm this particular link at this particular time in this intergenerational story that I had the opportunity to even have access to these tools and ways of healing, right? Even after becoming a psychiatrist, I really didn't know how to be in relationships. 
And I went to Harvard for my fellowship. Like I was at the top of the top of the intellectual food chain, if you will. But I still struggled in my relationships. Truthfully, psychiatry did not teach me the tools I needed to create the life I have now. It was an opening. It was an entryway. It allowed me access to minds and people and different ways of thinking. But the training itself wasn't, it, it, didn't, it didn't help me. I had to find my own way, even after becoming a double board certified psychiatrist, I had to find my own way through the, through the jungle, really. before I found and integrated the different parts within me and found safety and calm even when I was triggered and was able to have my body not react from traumatic ways of thinking and being and to stay in open, secure, calm, compassionate connection with other human beings, even when we disagreed, or even when the possibility of the relationship coming to an end. For a long time, I would panic like hell if there was a possibility that I might lose a romantic or primary attachment relationship. But while I was in the relationship, I would be pushing and pulling. It was confusing for everybody involved, <laughs> to say the least. It took me a long time to find the right tools and integrate them in the right way to create the life I have now. And to be able to maintain it over a decade, right? We can all do things for a few weeks or a few months. Trust me, I did that over and over in different relationships. Could keep it together for a few weeks, sometimes even a few months. But now it is just who I am. And my passion, my mission, other than passing on a better model, a better legacy to my daughter, is to share what I know about the shortest path to permanent healing with the world. Now, your story will be different than mine. We're all completely unique, right? Even siblings from the same family will have a different take, different memories, different stories, different hurts and wounds. So yours will be unique to you. And your story may include bigger traumas than what I experienced. It may include some big and some small traumas. It may include a series of small disappointments and hurts and rejections. Yours will be unique to you. But here's the thing. How 
it showing up in your current life will be a combination of three things. It'll show up in the way you manage triggers and disappointments and upsets and your emotions. It'll show up in your ability to stay present with your body and with your physiology, to stay calm and open instead of either feeling busy, 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 anxious, or shut down and disconnected. And the third way it shows up is in your relationships, your mind, your body, and your relationships. Those three areas is where the sum of our early experiences show up, the results of our early experiences. The areas that still need healing, that are still hurting, that you are still posturing to protect those wounds. We all do that. We protect, we learn ways of thinking and behaving so that we can protect those vulnerable areas. And that helps us survive, but then it gets us in trouble as adults because we're still posturing or we're still withdrawing or collapsing, right? I am still a work in progress. I will be, I hope I will be until my last day on this earth. I hope I'm learning and healing and growing even on my deathbed. I still get triggered. I still get suspicious. I still have a hard time letting go and trusting. I still have a um, autonomic system that gets aroused and sort of what we call sympathetic hyperarousal. That still happens. The thing though is I know what to do with it. I know when it happens, I can recognize it pretty immediately. And I know what to do with it to bring myself back into inner safety and calm and security within myself and also in my relationships. That's what's changed. And that's my passion is to be able to pass that on to as many people as I can, because I truly believe that the combination of working with your inner psyche, with your protectors and posturing and the wounds underneath and really cleansing and rewiring that, working with your body and your nervous system and your sympathetic hyperarousal, and then working on staying present and open and connected in your relationships. There is a specific process that you can learn. If I could learn it, anyone could learn it. You can learn to put these three puzzle pieces together in a specific sequence that I believe is the quickest and most permanent path to healing growth and love and to pass on a better legacy. So that's my mission. And I hope 
that whatever your story is, I hope you know you're not alone. I want you to know you're not alone. I see you. I see you. I love your heart. I see your longing to be something better, to pass on something better. That's important. Listen to that whisper is what I can tell you. Listen and follow that whisper. That's the life force speaking under all those layers of hurt. All right, my friend. I love you to the moon and back. And I'm here for you. If you have any thoughts, questions, comments, please reach out to me. I have my social media handles in the show notes. Reach out to me. Let me know how I can help. And I will talk to you in a few days again. Big hugs. Take care. Hi, my friend. If you found this episode helpful, come join us in our free Facebook group called Your Brain on Trauma. The link is in the show notes. And there is a whole community there of women just like you who are on this sacred healing journey. We cannot heal in isolation. We need community. And that's what we have in our free Facebook group. I'll see you there.